Welcome, everybody, to Ramdas Here and Now. And I'm your host, Raghu Marcus. Today's talk comes from March 1975, March 20 in Washington, to be exact. Actually, Ramdas, in this talk, he says that two weeks previous to that uh, evening, he had read this article in uh, New York Times Sunday Magazine, which I love. I read every Sunday. And it was about, um, said two-fifths, two they did a survey, two-fifths of the country ha of people had mystical experiences. And 80%, this is crazy, 80% of those people said they did not want to have it again. And they said it was the greatest experience I've ever had, and I never want to have it again. <laughs> so, isn't that wild? Um, and that's going to lead us into uh, what this talk is about. Or you know, He's got a few things going on. This talk, uh, we're going to title it Veil of Tears. And the Veil of Tears is a term that relates with the separateness that we live, that we uh, get born into, and how we uh, deal with that suffering of separateness is the veil of tears. And obviously removing that veil is much of what our spiritual work is about. I'm going to bring in here something. It's interesting because uh, I was doing something for a podcast for Mind Rolling on the MindPod Network, which some of you I know are aware of. Others of you may want to check it out. Uh, a lot of great, you know, all of our family of friends of Ram Dass and myself and are a part of the MindPod Network, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield. It's wonderful. Lama Surya Das. Uh, and I was, so I was doing a podcast and it was... Um, David Silver, my partner, and I were talking about the gap, okay? The concept of the gap, which is a Buddhist term, uh, which basically is about, it's used in meditative, uh, let me look for the, uh, there's a, a really good explanation. It's used mostly in meditative terms. Uh, you're sitting and you begin to notice a gap once you get real concentration and absorption. There's a gap between thoughts and feelings, barely perceptible moments in which there is simply no thought, no feeling, just pure, open awareness. And as these gaps grow longer and a little less startling, we can begin to rest within them. And the more, of course, that gets expanded through practice, um, that starts to really affect uh, the rest of our lives. And uh, so the gap is a, a, a major concept that... Uh, so this lecture, uh, this talk Ram Dass gave is in 1975, and there's this incredible parallel to some of what he's saying here. He's talking about the prediction is that... Uh, the I'm sorry, the predicament is that most of us have some sort of structure of how we think the world is, a model of the universe. And everything that comes in, we say, does that fit in with our model? And if it doesn't, we put it into another category. It's either weird or interesting, but not for me. Um, and the predicament is when you keep doing that, you, you can never change because your system is constantly rejecting everything that doesn't fit in with who you thought you were. Right? I mean, this is what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, projections and uh, impressions and reactions and so on. Uh, and this all, uh, he further says uh, a little bit later in, in the article, so when you have a mystical experience, it upsets the apple cart. It upsets the security of the separateness which we are, uh, which is called normal for us on a day-to-day -day basis. We push away our heritage. I think I love that term. Our heritage is the opposite of, of, of feeling separateness. It's, it's unity. 
We get attached to our desire systems and our separateness. We get afraid of losing our separateness, and out of that comes greed, lust, anxiety, and so on. So then I, I turned back to this stuff that I was reading from Trungpa, and um, let me read a little bit of it. It's really fascinating how this just two completely different. Uh, I mean, of course, Ramdas did study with Trungpa. But really, it's coming from two different traditions. When a gap or space occurs in our experience of mind, and you could call that space or that gap can easily be a mystical experience. It can be a psychedelic experience. It's a sudden glimpse of awareness, openness. That was my interjection, by the way. Absence of self. A suspicion arises. Suppose I find that there's no solid me. That possibility scares me. I don't want to go into that. That abstract paranoia, the discomfort that something may be wrong is the source of karmic chain reactions. It's the fear of ultimate confusion and despair. The fear of the absence of the self, of the egoless state, is a constant threat to us. Isn't that right in line with Ramdas saying, with the mystical experience, and we can easily call that a gap, upsets the apple cart, it upsets the security of the separateness, we push away that spaciousness, we get attached to our separateness. I mean, pretty amazing. Um, Suddenly we are bewildered by the discovery of selflessness and do not want to accept it. We want to hold on to something. Then the next step, and this is something everybody can relate with, the next step, is the attempt to find a way of occupying ourselves, diverting our attention from our aloneness. Right? The karmic chain reaction begins. Karma is dependent upon the relativity of this and that. My existence and my projections. All right? Go back to what uh, I first quoted from Ramdas about the predicament is most of us have some sort of structure of how we think and and we are judging everything that comes into us and we are not accepting whatever doesn't fit into our world structure so uh, karma is dependent on the relativity of this and that my existence and my projections and karma is continually reborn as we continually try to busy ourselves. In other words, there's a fear of not being confirmed by our projections. One must constantly try to prove that one does exist by feeling one's projections as a solid thing. Feeling the solidity of something seemingly outside you reassures you that you are a solid entity as well. I just think it's uh, it's it's pretty far out these how these things come together and and uh, between these two very different beings. Um, this this talk has just a lot of uh, wonderful uh, points to, that Ramdas makes. Um, and this last one that I wanted to point out, and he talks about when you want to awaken. When you want to awaken, and this, this is good to think about in relationships, then the nature of your relationships is modified in terms of the way in which everything you are about helps you to come to God. So this is a good thing. Uh, this, this, I think, came, out, came up in uh, this talk when somebody actually, in the middle of the talk, asked something about relationships and awakening, and when the other person isn't, is a, isn't awakening either with you or at the same rate. So this is a great thing to think about. Um, when you when you when you want to awaken, then the nature of your relationships are modified in terms of the way in which everything you're you are about helps you to come to God. Because of that point, you understand what the incarnation was about. You understand the perfection of the design of the game, and it is so perfectly designed that there is no experience you could possibly have that hasn't been perfectly designed to awaken you. That's when you know that you know the reality 
of suffering is grace, which Ramdas, of course, talks about, has talked about a lot over the last number of years, and certainly as a result of the stroke that he had, and stuff that he's going through even these days, uh, which, you know, suffering uh, is, is certainly there after 18 years in a wheelchair and part of your body paralyzed. Um, to be able to actually say that in, and make it real through understanding that whatever is presented to you is perfectly designed. Uh, it's not that it's caused by God, so to speak. It is not caused by anything but nature, but it's the way that you receive it that you that it gets transformed. So, um, Veil of Tears from Ram Dass in March 1975. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for supporting. Please continue that support. Go to ramdas.org and just utilize any number of different means to continue the support. You can donate. You can, uh, you know, we, we do a lot of uh, sharing of different uh, content uh, on ramdas.org. Uh, we just did, uh, and I've mentioned this in the last podcast, this, uh, the wonderful reception we got to our summer mindfulness and meditation course. And uh, those of you who have supported it just realize that that support goes a long way to help other people who can't afford to uh, subscribe to, or we don't have subscription anymore, but I can't afford to donate uh, f- to get these wonderful uh, pieces of content and webcasts and webinars and all of what we do. Uh, this Your contribution enables many people to participate. So I think that's a, a, a very, very um, primal point of uh, how it works for everybody when we're we all take a different role here so uh, and look very soon um, we are going to start the pre-order um, campaign for love everyone which is a story all of our stories after meeting Ramdas going to India and uh, meeting Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji and the stories in this book are just absolutely fantastic and give everybody a real take on, on the intimacy uh, that, uh, that we had and the teachings that we got without there being any teachings, because Maharaji didn't teach per se, but of course tons of teachings came out. And just the love, the unconditional love, it's just, it's very precious. And uh, that'll start um, September 8th. And uh, the book will be available in November. And we need to get as many people kind of pre-ordering so the publisher will print more copies to make more available worldwide. So here we are with Ramdas here and now. Where are we at this moment? Since we have been on this journey together, these low, many... Many what? Many years? How about many lifetimes? Just so that we'll have a basis of discussion, I'm going to set forth a set of statements. I'm not, I'm going to invite you for a moment to set aside judging. See, the predicament is that most of us have got some kind of a structure about how we think the world is, a model of the universe, and everything that comes in, we say, does that fit in with our model or doesn't it? And if it doesn't, you put it into um, that other category, weird, or I'll study it later, or very interesting, but that's not for me, or crazy. Or, oh, that's a cult. Or, mystic nonsense. 
Now, the predicament is that when you keep doing that, you can never change because your, your system is constantly rejecting everything that doesn't fit in with who you thought you were. And if there's one statement I would share with you tonight is that whoever you think you are, you aren't. That's true. That is truth. If I say to you, who are you, whatever you think you are in answer to that, forget it. You are a being who's being that, but that isn't who you are. Now, in order to use this experience maximally, optimally, for a moment set aside the judgments. You can have them back as you leave. And as you go out the door, it's like Herman Hesse saying, check your mind at the door. See? As you leave, you can have back the decisions and the opinions and the judgments. And at that point, you'll have a whole unit of stuff to judge. Won't that be fun? But for the moment, just let it in. There's no uh, hypnosis or seduction. Let it in and just feel it for a while and see how it feels. Don't let your intellect judge it so fiercely because you've got to watch out for your intellect. It's playing a very funny game. As Vivekananda said, your intellect is an exquisite servant, but a terrible master. It's great to have one, but it's tough to be ruled by it. Because the system is much more exquisite than your intellect, or than your intellect can know much more. Okay, here goes. Where are we now? You and I have taken incarnation. We are in a body, we are in a personality, we are in a time-space locus, we are living out a set of experiences. We entered into this plane of existence somewhere between the moment of conception of this body and the moment of birth. Some beings enter into the fetus at conception and some at birth and some in between. So that when you notice babies that are born that can't figure out what they're doing here, those are the ones that were entering in at the time of birth. See, just the last minute they jumped in and the veil went down and here they are and they don't know what they're doing and they're like an old Tibetan Lama who's born in the Bronx, see, and he can't figure out what the hell in this body, in this place, in this time, nobody speaks Tibetan. And everybody's going goo, 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 and look, it opened its eyes and... And he can't even say, oh, money, ped me home, because his mouth doesn't work. And the whole thing is a monstrous, strange thing. And he just wants to leave the whole, split the whole scene. Then there are other beings that came in at conception, and they've been around for nine months, and they've just, uh, they've given up into it. And they're all ready, and they're very docile. Aren't you a good baby? Meaning the veil has, been des has descended Why did you take a birth on this particular plane rather than on another plane of which there are many, many, and there are many more beings on other planes than there are on this plane, as overpopulated as this plane seems to be? You specifically took a birth on this plane because this plane offers a set of conditions which are optimum for your soul to work out its karma or the stuff that it has gathered over births. In other words, this birth 
which looks to you like kind of a chaotic, random, somewhat morbid humor of God. has an absolute exquisite perfection of the unfolding of your being in an evolutionary direction towards your becoming fully conscious of who you are, which turns out to be God. And the journey went from the one into the many, and back to the one. And every one of us is on that wheel somewhere. Either you're busy going from the one to the many, proliferating multiplicity, separateness, more paranoia, more possessions, more separateness, or you're busy going from the many back into the one. How long have you been doing this game? Buddha said, if you took a mountain one mile by one mile by one mile, and every hundred years a bird flew over the mountain with a silk scarf in its beak and ran the scarf over the mountain every hundred years, in the length of time it would take the scarf to wear away the mountain, that's how long. That puts this particular one in a slightly different time perspective, doesn't it? Buddha at one point looked back with his psychic consciousness, his third eye, and he saw his last 99,000 births. And that was just a drop in the bucket. Atlantis is nouveau. <laughs> Even India's system of kalpas and yugas, millions of year spans in which their history is defined. That's when we're going back to the times of Ram and Shiva and so on, Rama and Shiva. So you have been going around and around and around, taking birth after birth after birth, and in each birth you have been working out your karma. How did you get into the predicament in the first place? Ha <laughs> Well, there was a time when you were just with the one. One of the nice metaphors for it, or images of it, is the Garden of Eden. And one of the things that was available to you as an individual entity still within the one, so you were totally in the flow and the harmony of the universe, and you were not separate at all because you were not identified with your thinking mind which thinks about objects so it immediately makes you separate. You were living intuitively in the flow, in the Tao, in the harmony. You were living like rivers and trees which don't think I'm going to go downstream and what will I find and it may be dangerous down there. And in that Garden of Eden was the freedom to make the choice to go against God. To make the choice to set yourself up to want to know you know. to want to be separate from. Now, you've got to realize you are still part of God, but it is as if God separates out in order to know itself. But the act is one of pushing away, and then that is the casting out of the garden into the separateness. And at first, one thinks with my powers of prehensile capacities, 
my thumb and index finger, I'm much better than the animals, and with my huge cerebral cortex, I can think better than anything around, I am equal in power to God. And so we have what has developed in the West, which is the worship of the golden calf, the worship of the calf of man's powers, man's intellect. Look at, we can put somebody on the moon. Look at that. Look at how we can completely bungle the universe. Aren't you impressed? Look at that. And our medicine men of our society have been the ones with the great intellect. Because we forgot, we forgot, we forgot where we came from. We forgot the harmony of which we are part. We forgot it all. We forgot that wise men are beings who are in tune with the universe, not thinking about the universe. And now and then we go out and we'd sit with a tree or sit with a river and we would feel some kind of primordial pull with the oceans, with the mountains, and we'd say, where did we come from? What are we part of? And we would have moments of transcendent experience. But how did most of us deal with that transcendent experience? About a month and a half ago, there was a beautiful article in the Sunday supplement of the New York Times about mysticism. And it said that two-fifths of the population of the United States had had a mystic transcendent experience when they had gotten out of their separateness. And imagine two-fifths of 200 million people. And then it added the additional statistic that of those two-fifths, 80-some-odd percent said they never wanted to have it again. <laughs> they said, it was the greatest experience of my life and I never want to have it again. Okay? Because it upset the apple cart. It upset the security of the separateness. And so we push away our heritage, if you will, and we go out in the world, and the minute we come down out of that harmonious space and come into our forms, we get attached to our desire systems. And we get attached to our separateness, and we get afraid of losing our separateness, and out of that comes greed and lust and anxiety and so on. And so you go, birth after birth after birth, and your anger or greed leads you to do a certain act, and that act has its karmapans, its karmic consequences. And that karmic consequence follows you around and it has its effect, you can find out. Like if you steal from me, you end up paranoid. Isn't that funny? I end up without the money, but you end up paranoid. Because in order to steal from me, you have to live in the world in which I'm not your brother, I'm separate from you. I'm them, I'm not us. Because you don't ever steal from us, you only steal from them. And you get so in this society that everybody but you and say your wife and your mother and father or your husband or your children are them. You're afraid to move outside the door, you've got double locks on everything because them is everywhere. Everybody's them. Bus driver's them. You can get friends with them, but don't get too close. My father used to say, stick with your own. 
<laughs> Who are they? That's very funny. I told the story in, in uh, the album Love, Serve, Remember, but it's such a delicious story. I just love to share it. It concerned uh, my father and I were having a discussion about economics. And he said, I don't understand you at all, Richard. That's who I am in that other world. He said, um, you just put out this album, Love, Serve, Remember. I said, yeah. He said, you were charging four and a half dollars for it. He says, it's six records. He said, I go into a record store, six records, you could get $20 for it. I said, that's right. Well, what are you charging four and a half dollars? I said, that's all it costs us to produce. Yeah, but he said, you could have used the money for something good. I said, well, why should I use it? Why shouldn't the person use it who bought the records? He says, I don't understand you. He says, are you against capitalism? And I said, no, I'm for you living your life as you feel you should live it. And I live my life as I should live it. He says, well, I don't understand you at all. I said, well, tell me something. Did you just try a law case for Uncle Henry? And he says, yeah. I said, was it a tough case? He says, you're damn right. I had to see the judge twice, and it was a lot of time in the law library, and it was not easy at all. I said, boy, that was hard. I bet you charged him a big fee. He said, of course not. He looked at me like I'm an idiot. He says, it's Uncle Henry. I didn't charge him a big fee. I said, well, that's my predicament. Everybody's Uncle Henry. Okay? <laughs> If you show me them, I'll rip them off, okay? okay. So that as you get identified into your separateness, you are then forced to protect your separateness to start to push the world away, and you get more and more paranoid, and out of that separateness and paranoia comes all the neuroses that keep everybody busy getting healthy from. <laughs> round and round the wheel goes. On and on and on and on. The rock is wearing away very, very slowly. And what is the quality of that separateness? The one quality that can describe it is suffering. You really suffer in it. This particular veil is sometimes called the veil of tears. That far out name. You say, well, it's not all that bad. I mean, I've had a lot of fun in life. Yeah. But the predicament many of us in this room are finding is that even in the middle of the fun, the ha, 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 oh, are we having fun? Oh, great, hey, man, ooh, wow, whew. There's a little place in you that's saying, is this all it is? Is this what it was about? Wow. Round and round, until 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 as you are going along looking into the world looking out into the world for your gratifications and you come to a point where you know that everything out there isn't going to do it for you You've forgotten where you came from. You've forgotten what the feeling is inside of yourself of somebody being fully connected to the universe in harmony 
being one with it all, you've forgotten that completely. You don't know anything about that stuff. That's all mystic hogwash. And you thought, if I only have a new Porsche, when I drive up into the mountains, oh, and you get the Porsche and you soup it up and it's all perfect and the car radios work just right. And the day is like today. It's that first feeling of spring and you take a beautiful companion and you smoke whatever you smoke and you go riding off up into the hills and you're cruising through the hills and there's, you see the first bird, robins, and the whole thing is in, you know, crocuses and daffodils and the whole shtick. It's all there, the blue sky and the perfect clouds and the wine and the cheese and the whole thing. I mean, we can all live out fantasy after fantasy. I mean, which one do you want, right? And it's all, oh, yeah, ooh, wow, mm. Pretty nice. The only predicament with it is that it ends. I mean, that's really a drag. I mean, not necessarily does the Porsche run out of gas or get into an accident or you have a fight with your partner or does the rain fall, but probably the sun will set and it'll get cold. I used to have a motorcycle out in California and I'd drive up into the mountains and oh, it'd be so exquisite and suddenly the sun would set and it would turn into living hell. <laughs> and I'd say, isn't this fun? Isn't this fun? And I couldn't convince myself I was really having a good time. And that was Buddha's point in talking about Porsches, <laughs> he said. <laughs> oh, ye bhikkhus, the trouble with Porsches is that the sun sets. Which translated means, if you're attached to anything in time, forget it. Because there's suffering connected with time, because, and this too shall pass. And lay not up your treasures where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break in, etc. And what is unique about this, not unique, but what is, exists in this plane is this plane is in, we live in time and space and who we think we are. Who you think you are is within time and space. So who you think you are is going to die, and that's kind of scary, isn't it? Who you think you are is going to cease to exist, because you know what's going to happen to your brain in about 40 or 50 or 20 or 10 or one year? It's going to be eaten and disintegrate. You know you're decaying at this moment. I mean, I don't care, even if you're not old and bald like me, you're decaying. Even the young ones here, you're decaying. You're rotting right on the vine, right now. Aren't you frightened? And you can oil it, cream it, bathe it, bake it, cook it, transplant it, exchange it, and it will still decay and rot. And that brain who thinks it's somebody is going to be stone cold dead any time and you don't know when. Boy, there's a source for great joy, isn't it? Okay. So if you identify with that, boy, there's a loser. There's a loser. The question was, okay, thank you. The question was, for those of you that didn't hear, suppose you are sharing the journey, the journey with another being, and you see the soul of the other being, and you assume the other being sees your soul, and the journey is enhanced by the exquisiteness of the sharing, 
And then at some point along the way, you become aware that the other being isn't seeing it like you were seeing it. Do you have to give it up? Is that the question? Okay. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. What you do about your daily existence in the universe is a function of what you want, what you are ready to want, what you are ready to want, and what you are ready to want is a function of what you understand it all to be about and what you feel you are ready for. A lot of people want to want to awaken, but they don't want to awaken because it would upset the apple cart of that particular relationship. When you want to awaken, then your, the nature of your relationships is modified in terms of the way in which everything you are about helps you to come to God, because at that point you understand what the incarnation was about, and you understand the perfection of the design of the game. And it is so perfect. Let me not... understate the perfection. The game is so perfectly designed that there is no experience you could possibly have that hasn't been perfectly designed to awaken you. At first you say, oh, I went to satsang, or I went to the sangha, or I went to this groovy scene or this church, and I really got high, and I understood about God, but then I had to go to work. Well, then I had to go back to my wife or my husband or my mother or my father or my kids and, oh, God, If I could only stay in church all the time. And sometimes you redesign your life in order to stay in church all the time. You get rid of everybody that doesn't fit in the church with you. You don't like church? Forget it. I don't know you anymore. then you realize that what you have created for yourself is a new form of paranoia. It's like a, you're afraid, you're still feeling unworthy, and you feel you need the contact high of the experience out there. And you're afraid of coming down, and so you don't want to walk out the doors of the church. You don't want to be separated from the satsang or the sangha or the other beings who are sharing the journey. As you get more conscious, you begin to see that you go out and you come down and you deal with the downness and you deal with the upness and you deal with the fear of losing it and you feel you lost it and you find it again and you forget and you remember and you struggle and there's pain and there's suffering and there's illness and it is all perfectly part of the process of awakening. And when you know that, you have one of the keys to the mystery of life because at that moment you know that suffering is grace. At that moment there's nothing anybody can do to you anymore that you don't say, yeah, well, it's like when Mahatma Gandhi was put into prison and they gave him a lice-infected uniform and they told him to clean the urinals and all that. Here was the head of India about to be. And he went up to the guard and he said, thank you. And it wasn't a put on. It wasn't a sarcastic thank you. It was thank you. It was thank you. Because at that point, you take your existing karma just the way you are at this moment with all of your mashugana business you take it all and you say, right, and here I am, and my contract is with God, and I'm coming home, and all of this stuff is my vehicle to get there. And my vehicle isn't this, but not that. It's whatever is in my consciousness space. Whatever it is. 
And it's all exquisitely designed as part of your space. Yeah, but that occurs. Now let me go back. I'll come back to the question a little later. But let me now just finish this sequence of, uh, of evolution. You're caught in getting, you're caught in the philosophical materialism that pervades the, the world in which you're living at this moment. So the game is get as much as I can for me now. And more is better. Those are statements of our existing philosophy. Right? More is better and number one first. Because when you're dead, you're dead. And then you keep collecting and collecting, and because you have the media, you see people who collected faster and more than you did. And so you only have $50,000 a year, and you look at somebody that's got a half a million a year, and you look at television, and their face comes into the camera really close up, and there are these bags and jowls and sadness. And all the time you thought, if you had 500,000, you'd be happy, light, and beautiful. And look at this monster in front of you. Is this it? I mean, do you want to spend your life becoming who? Who of our hero figures in this culture do you want to be? Right? Frank Sinatra. How about that? Huh? There's a hero figure. How about Mick Jagger? Happy, fulfilled, realized, free being? Maybe. What vibration do you get in your heart? See, it's in your heart that you know, and you say, well, that's an interesting trip, but somehow... And if you're just a budding rock and roll star, and suddenly you see Mick Jagger on television, and you don't get lost in the style and the dance and the beauty, and you look into the being and you say, wow, far out. And for most of us gathered here, at some point, we start to have despair that any game we designed is going to be the one that's going to do it. Anyone. There are highs and there are lows, but there's no equanimity. There's no feeling of fulfillment. There's no homeness. There's no at-homeness about it. That despair is an apt, and some people are having it at 15 years old now. You don't have to wait till you're 70. At that moment, when that thing occurs, is the moment of the critical thing for which all those rounds have been building up. That's the moment when you look up or look in. It has to be enough despair so you know everything I know and planned and anticipated isn't going to do it. It's not going to be the Porsche. It's not going to be the family. It's not going to be the insurance and the money in the bank. It's not going to be the great political position. It's not going to be this or that. Those are all fine and useful and beautiful in this plane, but whatever it is I'm about, that isn't going to do it fully. And that's the moment when you look up. And the moment you look up, the whole game changes. And the predicament is some of you looked up because you were doped into looking up. Some of you looked up because of the despair. Some of you looked up and wished you'd never looked up because it screwed up your life so. The predicament is, unfortunately, once you've looked up, you can't forget. And then from then on, every incarnation is a whole different trip. Because up until then, the whole journey back to the one has been like an arithmetic curve, this very gentle curve. You go to church on Sunday, do a few good things in one lifetime. It's nice. 
Then you look up or look in, and then the curve becomes geometric. It goes whoosh. At first you say, well, I'm not going to let this screw up my scene too much. <laughs> See? I mean, it's very interesting, and I certainly think it's fascinating, and I, I would like to be a member of a group that meets on Monday night. Since I'm sharing the journey, I'll tell you where it comes out. Sooner than you would like. It comes out that every breath you breathe and every act you perform is done with total consciousness of the nature of your evolution towards God. And that's all there is left. All there is left. All there is left. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy everything you've been enjoying, but there just won't be much attachment to it. You can ride in the hills in your Porsche and say, Isn't this lovely? And if at that moment the Porsche broke down, and your friend turned out not to dig your soul, and it started to rain, and you stood out in the rain, alone, alone in the dark, with a, an uninsured Porsche broken, <laughs> you would be inclined to say, isn't this lovely? Okay. Because at that moment, you see that it all is grist for the mill of coming to God. None of it is any better than any other of it. It is no longer this versus that. You don't grab at this and push that. You can design your life this way or that, but however it comes out, that's the way it is, and you work with it. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening, and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you. Thank you.